you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, then welcome back to the latest episode of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like that's just not sports. I am your host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. Not with me this week, Gareth Hughes. He is running around in our Brooklyn bureau tied up on other stuff. So I am bringing in a ringer to help me break down a topic that is near and dear to my heart. That's right. Spooky Halloween stuff. Uh, With me is a longtime friend of mine, a film professor at my alma mater and the host of the Summer Blockbuster podcast. It is Mr. Steve Warner. Say hello to the, the Just Not Sports listener base, which is mostly just you and my mom. (laughs) <laughs> what's up brad's mom how's it going thank you for having me on here i've been wanting to do this for forever so i really appreciate you asking we so we went to school together we worked on the uh student newspaper together i, I want to say the first film we ever saw together in the theater was urban legends 2 <laughs> final cut <laughs> which is a, a, an appropriate um, an appropriate transition to in our in our distractions uh, part of the episode later in the show. You and I are going to break down the all time greatest horror movie sequels in honor of Halloween. Um, I, I would say, how much of this time of year are you actually watching scary movies? Because off air, we were just joking that most of my TV is occupied by like Vampirina and My Little Pony because of my kids, and I, I find myself listening to more podcasts about horror movies than actually watching them. <laughs> Uh, I I try to watch more. I mean, for the class, we just watched the original 1978 Halloween. So I revisited ah. that yesterday, actually. Of course, it still holds up. You mean you didn't you didn't assign them the Busta Rhymes one? <laughs> Resurrection that we may be talking about that later. I can't believe you pulled that easily sequel. out of your. Oh, the Busta Rhymes <laughs> one is clearly Resurrection. That would at least be a, like an IMDb poll for me. Oh, we, we've actually covered that on my podcast before. So uh. that is why it's fresh in my head. <laughs> and actually talking about best uh, sequels will be good because I, I know that our list will include a lot of uh, of the more enter- just entertainment focused entries into the genre, if I'm guessing correctly. <laughs> oh, yeah. I have some real fun trash on my list. So, <laughs> All right. Well. Uh, we'll get to that in a little bit. Right now, let's go to my interview this week with NBA veteran Eton Thomas. He is a longtime presence in the NBA. You you know him probably the most from his years with the Washington Wizards. Um, and he's someone who's really redefined what he does in his post-athletic world. He has a book of poetry. We talk about creative writing, the role that that plays in his uh, in his life uh, post career, and and Eton is someone who has really redefined himself as a athlete activist, uh, especially during these times when so many sports are uh, encouraging athletes to speak up on issues of social and political uh, importance. Eton is someone who's been doing that uh, for more than a decade. And so we talk about the evolution of athletes speaking out, what it was like back in the day before social media when he was taking up a stand against things like the Iraq War and dealing with an older school media media establishment that, you know, <laughs> as he puts it, uh, really didn't want him to be saying anything that wasn't basketball related. So I think it's an illuminating conversation with someone who has been part of the, um, you know, 
athlete activism scene for a long time and, and someone who's embracing new voices in the movement um, in a very interesting way. So uh, anyway, I think it's a good interview. And then afterwards, stay tuned. Steve and I are coming back to break down our list of all-time favorite horror movie sequels. Stick around. I have been following, you know, your, your writing on like, you know, places like basketballnews.com. What's it been like to try to cover and follow this season since it went into the bubble? You know, this season, it, 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 it looks a lot better. First of all, the presentation is a lot better than I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. And I was somebody who I actually wrote an article um, kind of urging Adam Silver not to start the season back because of, <laughs> corona, because, because of coronavirus concerns. Yeah. Um, and you know, but he created, I got to give him props. He created the bubble and they, it was successful. I mean, and I I just wish the, the government would be as, you know, proactive as Adam Silver was (laughs) and and putting in different measures, but I, 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 I'm enjoying it. I think it's, it's been a, it's, it's interesting. It's different and there's pluses and minuses to it. So, you know, on one hand, you're, you're watching the games and, you know, the players, you know, don't seem like they're worn out you know while you're watching the the season in the playoffs because there's no traveling involved and they look like they had fresh legs and they were like bouncing and everything like because they don't have to you know take the red eye or you know what i mean in the middle of the night going to a different city after a game um you know they just go to their hotel so i i saw that aspect the no crowd thing was a little bit different at first i didn't like the monitors it looked kind of weird to me looked like the hunger games or something like that but but (laughs) as you but as you but as you keep going it just you just kind of got used to the new look and the presentation and the games that you know you start stop focusing on that so much and started focusing on the the game and then they had you know famous people you could see them in the monitors that was good ad and you know I, I, and the series the, the the series was great because you had so many upsets nobody thought Miami right. was going to beat number one seeded Milwaukee you know what I mean I yeah. mean nobody no, nobody thought the Clippers was going to lose to Denver so I thought that it was the, the product itself was good if you had been trapped in the bubble what would you have brought for entertainment I don't know honestly because after they changed the rule to say that you could bring your family right I would have been I would have been straight with my family you know what I mean because <laughs> I was like oh, okay well I'm good but I, but I don't know the rule I think you could bring one family member or, or like one plus or two like if so if you have you know, I have, me and my wife have three kids. So I don't think everybody could come. So I don't know the details of it. So that would have been kind of tricky. I'm a, how do I invite one kid but not the other kid? You know yeah. what I'm saying? <laughs> like, I don't know how that's going to work. But, you know, I it would, it, I mean, you would have to just, I don't know what they do all, the, all day. You know what I mean? But, yeah. they, but, but honestly, but I've been, we've been quarantined, you know, for a while. So we've been in the house all day. So I'd probably be doing the same things that I'm doing now. You know, doing a lot of media, doing a lot of writing, doing a lot of, you know, different shows. I would have been, you know, probably doing the same exact thing for me personally. By the way, I've got two kids. I know exactly which one I would bring and which one I would leave at home. But I'll keep (laughs) that to myself. Um, Look, look, there's a lot to talk to you about in terms of um, this historic moment with how, um, you know, the league and and athletes all across sports have responded to, you know, uh, social issues. I want to get into all that. I do want to start. I feel like of late, everyone jumps right to you as activist uh, and kind of glosses over you as artist, you as poet. And I was just wondering how much Mm -hmm. 
Have you been inspired by this historic moment? Are you writing a lot, um, uh, you know, just in, in your own time in terms of your, your poetry or, or other sort of, uh, you know, non-news uh, non and, and, and essays? Just, I'm just curious about you as artist and, and how this moment may have affected your own work. Well, definitely. I mean, there's a lot to write about, you know, and it, it's, it's, it's amazing because, you know, with so much going on, with so much happening kind of nonstop, it's like I can't stop writing, <laughs> to be honest with you, um, you know, and, and writing articles. So I'm writing like for three different publications right now. And like and, and it's crazy because sometimes like I can't sleep, like I'll wake up in the middle of the night. My routine is usually and it, and it was like that with all my writing is that's when inspiration kind of hits me in the middle of the night. So, you know, I'll wake up and an odd hour, like three or four in the morning, and it'll just kind of, and I'm thinking about it, and I just can't stop thinking about it. You know what I mean? So I got to just get it on paper because I'm sitting there laying down thinking about it. And so that's happened quite a bit. And when when it happens, you know, th there's nothing else you could do. You just got to get up and write. And it is and it's interesting because for a while, the, I didn't have that urge all the time. I didn't have that those moments, but it's like they're nonstop now because so much has been been going on you know yeah yeah of course and i'm also fascinated like are you doing a lot of creative writing in terms of poetry still uh, or is this something that has more uh ebbed and waned as you've you know done a lot more activism and and just like uh, general you know contributions in media uh both it's, it's it's both i've done a lot of poetry and i've done a lot of um you know, articles, and I told you, like, I'm writing for three different publications. Yeah, yeah. I'm writing for under, the Undefeated, I'm doing Basketball News, and I'm writing for The Guardian. And so I, I, I've just been writing a lot, just all around a lot. And, um, you know, honestly, like I said, there's so much stuff to write about, and I, I just I just keep going. Yeah, absolutely. I, now, I, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but I believe your advice to a lot of athletes is find your passion while you're still playing. <laughs> and I do yes, think you are, you are a testament to that as you've been someone who's been exploring so many different parts of your own um, you know, your own passions ever since you were back in the league as a player. I'm just curious, kind of curious, like, how did you know, your own ability to um, to sit down and explore, you know, who you are and, and your interests and your passions. Um, how did that tee you up for the post career uh, that you have now? Oh, well, I mean, I was doing it while I was playing and yeah. now I'm just doing it on a, on a different level. So it definitely teed everything up. Um, you know, I was always in, in, you know, certain instances, like I could always write really well on planes on train rides and something like that and it, it just would just come because you're just sitting there you're not doing anything you know what i mean so you just <laughs> you just you just write you're looking for to do anything that passes the time uh because you're just sitting there so yeah i, I would just i would just start writing and it, it it's it's a it's a good release for me you know i have a lot of thoughts i have a lot of you know especially now with social media so now it kind of went even more so because with social media you're scrolling through and looking at different stuff and it's hard not to have an opinion on stuff because you're reading stuff so much like so back in the day you know there was no social media so it wasn't as readily available all the different topics but now you, all you do is you scroll through your page and you, you come across like four things that you have an opinion on immediately. <laughs> and you're like, oh, my gosh, OK, I think I can write something about this right now. You know, and that's that's, that's what happens a lot of times. That's interesting. That's an interesting tension you bring up, because I was just seeing someone complain yesterday. They were saying a lot of writers 
they want to be as prolific as uh, you know as they can be, and yet you look at their their timelines and they've been sitting on Twitter all day long. You seem like you you might be more able to find inspiration from looking at social as opposed to seeing it as a distraction. But do you, do you ever recognize that tension that exists and and how people can get sort of sucked into the endless scrolling as opposed to actually processing what they think about it and turning it into output? Um, I think it, I think both happens. I think for me, I could you know go into you can easily go into the social media abyss where you're just you know casually <laughs> yeah. go, and that's why and that's why my wife um, put in certain rules. So like I can't have my phone during dinner time. You know what I mean? So, I, so and then my wife and my and my kids like all right, here's the phone basket, daddy. You got to put your phone the away. Phone and I'm I like the phone basket, and they are serious about it. Baby Sierra is like not joking. So I don't even I don't even put, take it out. But there are different times where, you know, as you're, you know, with the kids and you're halfway engaged with them, but then you're also looking at your phone. So that's something that I've been trying to get better at not doing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not saying that I'm, I'm the best at it. I'm trying to get better at not doing it. But there's there's so but especially now, though, especially when you're looking at all the craziness going on all the time and is the Trump watch. So what craziness is he's going to come with yeah. now? And you're, you know, you're, it's like, it, it's different. It's like, you don't have a peace of mind. Like you're where, okay. You know, you look at, it's like doomsday looking at posts. Like, what you know what I'm saying? It's not like this, you know, it, it, it's different now with this whole entire Trump administration, literally like the next bomb to drop, like the, as far as the coronavirus and you have games and, you know, college football. Okay. What, what team now is going to have an outbreak of coronavirus or what school district is now going to stop, you know, uh, or close their schools. I just saw that with New York, just close a hundred schools, uh, yeah. you know, so it's things like that. So it's different. So it's easy to get just kind of sucked in. You're just in this whole abyss of things. And but now it's like I'm writing since I have these three different outlets. I'm like kind of writing nonstop. So I have I have an outlet to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, social media has absolutely enabled athletes to you know find their voice and use it um, for different causes so much more readily. You know, that's it. It does make me curious. You were someone who was speaking out against things like the war in Iraq. Um, you know, well before mm-hmm. social had the role that it has today. And I am wondering right. what what was that like back then. And the different kind of approach you had to take, knowing that your message had to be always translated through, whether it's media, whether it's third party intermediaries, like how how did that, you know, we have a new generation of athletes that never has to deal with that. They can always go straight to their audience. But what was that like back then? And, and, And how did you kind of navigate that, especially knowing how many antagonistic voices in the media existed, especially back then, who who didn't want to hear from athletes other than just about the game? I mean, it was tough. I mean, I had certain media outlets and certain media people after I, you know, spoke out against the invasion of Iraq that, in particularly, wrote bad things about me consistently because of that. And he told me to shut up and dribble. I remember this one guy in particular from Tom, uh, Tom Knott from the Washington Times. He literally hated my guts ever since that. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it was like it was it was personal, and he didn't, you know. So every article was negative, and it's like, uh, you know, if I have a if I have a bad game, see, he's worried about dipping his nose and things he shouldn't be dipping his nose, and it should be focused on basketball. But that's what he would be writing in the Washington Times, you know. So so it was a thing where you're at the mercy of the media, and so now 
guys can immediately, if they see something they can like, they don't like, or somebody who misrepresents them or anything like that, they could go right to their social media. They have all these different outlets to be able to do it, and it will be picked up and probably picked up more than whoever is writing the, the media article because now they have millions of followers, <laughs> you right. know? So, so, it, so LeBron doesn't need to go to, you know, the LA times if he wants to get a message out <laughs> at all. He has, he goes to his own platforms. And, and, and that's just, that's so much, there's so much power in that. And what I always tell people with that, with, I'm like, I say, imagine if Muhammad Ali had a Twitter account. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. You know the the power that that would that that would have enabled him to be able to have. So you know, social media changes the whole thing, and that's why it's it's great. I mean, you know, of course, you have to be able to use it the right way, right. but social media is, is is great overall. And some guys do. To be clear, some athletes do probably need that phone basket from time to time. But we we all. Oh do, no you know? question. <laughs> no. Well, so, sometimes you'll see stuff. You'd be like, oh, my gosh, will somebody please take his phone away from him? You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's, Let, you know, I mean, see, see, I just thought that when I saw Kyrie Irving and I love Kyrie Irving, you know what I mean? But I saw I'm looking at the things and statements that he's saying and I'm looking at his look. I'm like, oh, my gosh. All right, please. Somebody take his phone away from him or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Honestly. Um, you had an interesting quote recently where you were talking about, you know, someone who does a lot of media and somebody who gets called in to comment on activism of the day, given your reputation, you were, you were kind of very outspoken about, look, sometimes media puts you on air and they want you to take a certain position. They don't want to listen to you. They're saying, Hey, I, right. I brought you on here to comment in this way because we're trying to create this debate. And I'm right. I, I think I worry a lot about that and that binary sort of debate driven uh, you know, media, um, you know, way of boxing a conversation in, we lose the nuances. So from your perspective, what do you think the media, and again, I'm not complaining about like air quotes, the media writ large, but you know, what do you think that individual reporters can do to better just listen to athletes on their terms, as opposed to bring them in to sort of fuel a conversation they perceive as, as needing to go a certain way? I don't think that's just for athletes. I think that's all media right now because the 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 debating. Um, now I don't even know. I, I can't even call it debating. It's more arguing and yelling on camera. Yeah, you know what I mean. That that's what gets clicks and saying something outrageous and things of that nature and going back and forth and it looks like a heated discussion. That's what gets clicks and views and that's where the media has gone to. So if you look at all the different programs, whether it's First Take or um, you know, uh, Shannon Sharp and Skip Bayless, or they're, they're all set up that way. One person has one take, one side, one person has the other side, and they just argue back and forth and yell over each other, you know? <laughs> and, that, right. that's, and, and that's the structure. So you know, a lot of times when you have those programs, they start to, like, you know, make you kind of take a side. So, you, you, so, so they bring you on, and they bring you on to take a certain position, and whatever position you take, they're going to say the opposite or play devil's advocate or something like that, whatever position. And mm. that, you know, it's, it's a different kind of media. I mean, I understand where media has headed and, uh, you know, I mean, where it's at, not headed where it is. I just don't like it to be honest with you. I, I don't, I like you being able to have conversations and I don't mind different um, opinions. I think that's great. But when it's, when it's manufactured, it just, I don't know. It, it 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 just seems so fake to me. It seems like WWE. You know what I mean? Like we're right. like I'm watching, you know, Mean Gene Oakland's interviewing their two people. I, I don't know if you remember WWF back oh, in the yeah, day. Yeah, but mean that, Gene. That, okay, okay, all right, all right, all right. But that but that's what it feels like. And you know, I I, I just don't. I I don't know. It just seems fake to me sometimes. Yeah. I 
and look, this has been a truly historic stretch for athletes as activists. Um, you know, definitely. And and and, and I do want to focus on. The NBA and the WNBA, I mean, certainly they're not alone, um, but this season has been just a remarkable outpouring of them, uh, whether it's, you know, you know, obviously the, the Bucks and the and the player strike that happened that kind of quickly uh, fed around sports, the, the efforts of WNBA players who have been sitting out entire seasons uh, despite making far less money and, and taking on more risk to fight for, um, you know, uh, to fight against racism. What do you think the legacy is going to be for this particular moment? And knowing how many leagues are about to, you know, end their seasons simultaneously, what's the key going to be to sustaining and continuing the momentum here for these players, uh, knowing that some of these uh, seasons are about to go dark? Well, I think that that you'll see players still, you know, using their voices and being active. And now they're they're going to start mobilizing and 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 putting into action a lot of things that they've been vocal about. And you've seen players talk about that and being ready for it. I mean, I got to give a lot of props to LeBron James with this more than a vote initiative that he's, that right. he's heading. And, you know, I mean, he's particularly um, mm -hmm. targeting uh, voter suppression, which has been, which is a major concern. I mean, you just, I mean, it's not even a, a concern. You, you know that that's what they're going to do. You've heard Trump say it in the debate. You know what I mean? He literally uh, told different groups of whoever, I don't know if you want to call them militias or whatever, to go to different voting pools to, you know, be able to police or, or interrogate different, um, you know, different uh, voting pools around the country. Like, that's what he said. That was the mandate that he gave. So, you know, there's going to be um, uh, efforts of voter suppression, probably more than we've ever seen. And we've seen quite a bit going back from Florida. It's a, you know what I mean? We, we have had uh, a lot of cases. So, so it's one thing to talk about it. Now, LeBron James put together this more than a vote initiative, and he has so many people put in place that President Obama, and I still call him President Obama, but President Obama, <laughs> you know, publicly congratulated him and said, oh, my God, I got to commend him for the work that he's doing, because this is fantastic. And, you know, the different parts where he's, where he's, um, you know, trying to get people eligible to vote that weren't eligible in Florida in particular, and Florida being a key state. I mean, it's just everything is, you know, specifically and structurally done. And I got to applaud LeBron. I have to, I got to say, but also with that, you see the threat that he is and you see why the right wants to silence him the way that he does. It's amazing. So I wrote this one article in, in The Guardian, and I made this comparison of LeBron James and Muhammad Ali in saying the, the power that they had and the threat that their voice and their actions and the work that they were doing had become to the opposition. And when, when, when I watched this, the, the UFC fight with Colby Covington, and they had that poorly, poorly executed, um, you know, with, where he said something about LeBron, he said, and then, and then Trump called him during the press conference, and they interrupted everything, and he was congratulating him on, you know, I don't know if you saw that whole that whole exchange. It it looked like something from a bad movie, right? But the, <laughs> but, the, but the reason why they took the time and the energy to orchestrate that is because of the level of 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 threat that that LeBron is. Trump has a lot of things going on right now that that could you know that should be his focus, but he's focused on LeBron and trying to tear down his reputation and try to you know tear down attack his intelligence and to you know what I mean and that just shows 
how powerful LeBron's voice and work is. Right. Because if it, if it wasn't, Trump wouldn't have done all of that. That took a lot of energy to orchestrate that that <laughs> that terrible display that we saw. You know what I mean? So it, it's it, you have to applaud him. So this is a special time of athlete activism, and you see what and, and you got to talk about LeBron because he is the 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 top of his craft. He is the the main guy. And how that has a trickle-down effect on the entire league. Because you have an entire league right now where the atmosphere is, it's okay for you to speak out and use your voice. And it wasn't like that back in the day. It wasn't like that when I was playing. And it definitely wasn't like that back in the, you know, back in the 90s. So you have, and, and I got to credit, of course, Adam Silver with creating that atmosphere, which is much different, different than the atmosphere that David Stern created. Um, yeah. But 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 here we are now. So you so with LeBron doing what he's doing, it's inspirational to everyone, like on down from LeBron to the down to the the draft. The you know what I mean. The new, I, I watched this one program on NBA TV, and the people in the draft were talking about LeBron and how they see him, and they find courage to be able to find their voice because all before, the notion was if you if you speak out, you could be in you know potentially end up like Craig Hodges or about Muda Durov and be whiteballed from the league. I heard that while I was playing. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. so so but now where the where the where the um with with LeBron and the entire environment, now that that is gone. That's not in existence. People are like, you know, feeling free. And now you have teams that are ha- having to acquiesce to that, even if they do feel that way, because that's the whole culture of the league. So it's it's just a different time. Yeah, and you mentioned that you know this being a different time. It's also I do think the athletes have started to move the target away from simple awareness to actionable change. I know you've spoken Definitely. about that's going to be crucial, right? It's not just hey, let's let's continue to to get people to think about it, but it's going to be what are owners going to do that is going to be tangible. What are leagues going to do that is going to be dollars and cents as opposed to just awareness campaigns. What is going to be the key there to continue to keep the heat on um, these franchises, these leagues, knowing that while a lot of them talk a good game, there are certainly many of them who privately uh, or somewhat semi-privately in some cases are actually working in opposition of some of these uh, things the players want? I think you have to just hold them accountable. You know, I just recently interviewed Mark Cuban and I asked him that very question and I was pushing him to do more as well. And Mark Cuban, you know, at first was saying, you know, well, I don't have necessarily as much power as you think I have. I'm like, no, you're Mark Cuban. You got a lot of power. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. <laughs> right, right. Don't you do that. You know, a TV but, show. <laughs> yes, you have a lot of power. And and it's it's just continuously pushing them. And that's, that's what it is. It's about accountability. And the players have that. And they've talked about it. Chris Paul, LeBron James, all of the, in the different meetings saying we have to keep the pressure on them because they're going to acquiesce to what they say. That's what it is. So if you keep the pressure on, I mean, when, when they, when they went on strike, um, the, the, what, the board of governors, that's what they call them now, but the, the governor, the board of governors came and met with them and talked with them and saying, okay, what can we do to help? Then they formulated this organization, the NBA social fund one. And then they formulated this one with the coaches and now what they're doing in their different uh, cities and stuff like, and they formulated all this different stuff. And now, and then they had the, um, the polling stations for each arena that's going to be able to come out. So they'll, they're listening to the players and the players just got to keep talking, keep making, keep, keep, you know what I mean? Keep yep. like, like, like Chris Paul keeps saying, keep pushing them to it because if you stop pushing the, them, then they're going to stop. 
But if you keep pushing them, then they're going to listen and they want to. It's kind of like, well, that's, and I think the same thing about Joe Biden. You know what I mean? We got to right. keep pushing them or he's going to just stop and be complacent. Okay, everything's cool. But but if you but so that's 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 what they have to do. Life's just one big jump shot. One big jump shot. Or you might be all cash money. So try to maintain and refrain from the strength and don't get lost in the salt. Don't get caught up in it. Life's just and we are back in the sports world. Athletes, coaches, media—they all do interesting things, and then we, the fans, tell them stop being interesting. Go back to being a uh, uh, go back to watching game film. You're being a locker room distraction. That is ridiculous. So on this show, we know that life is just work and the things that, that distract you from work. So we celebrate locker room distractions by telling you what's been distracting us. And, and, and back with me, Steve Warner. Steve, scary movies, I think, are, I don't know if I would call them like my favorite genre of films, but they are certainly the, the, the movies that I like thinking about and talking about the most. What do you think this says about me? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I would say that it makes you an incredibly diverse individual (laughs) is how I will put it. Uh, But I make no bones about it. Horror is by far my favorite genre of film. And we always talk about this in class about how like, Horror is the genre that also has probably the highest quantity of absolute shit. (laughs) Right. But at the same time, when there's a really good one, I mean, there's nothing better than that. I mean, the effect it has on you, the viewer. Like, nothing is as effective as a great horror film. So we're going to do our all-time top six Horror movie sequels. We chose six uh, because five was too hard to call down, and six is a spooky number, right? I mean, um, but <laughs> uh, oh, by the way, all six of yours are direct to DVD Hellraiser sequels, right? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I love part seven. I love part seven. Did I ever tell you when we had our second child, you know, and, and you're just up all hours of the day? I was talking to someone at work and they were like, how was it? I was like, well, you know, she was a really bad sleeper. And so I just got, you know, I listened to a lot of podcasts and they're like, what, what podcast, you know, were you binging? And I was like, I listened to like two different podcasts that were only about the Hellraiser franchise. (laughs) There are two different podcasts about the Hellraiser. Yeah. Like, and maybe one was more of an offshoot, but there was a certain point where I was listening to episodes about like, the books. <laughs> I'm like, I need to stop this now. What am I doing? <laughs> You've have you seen all of the Hellraiser films? Not, not like since the last couple. I mean, the the, the, the dude who played Pinhead's not even in the last one. I think that no, he's not. Yeah, like I, I kind of fell off after five. Is five the one with the like the it's more like a noir? I believe so, yes. because uh, the- four is the one the bloodlines with Adam Scott, and then five I think has like some people who ride for it. And then after that, I know they brought back Christy for part six, but I don't remember seeing that. Four is in space, right? There's component. It's like a multi-generational. It's kind of like the, what is that? The, the fountain. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> the, 
the the fountain of Hellraiser movies where like I think there's multiple <laughs> timelines. Yeah. <laughs> okay, now I want to rewatch that. Okay. I would rather rewatch that than the fountain. I can tell you that much. <laughs> so, I'll be curious to see. Okay, couple things. I excluded anything that was to me maybe an extension of a movie that you had to debate whether it was horror or not because the the genre sort of flipped like a great example would be I think you can classify Alien as a horror movie if you want. Yes. But Aliens is an action movie. <laughs> it is not a horror movie. I know, I was really torn on that. I I didn't include Aliens either, even though I believe that's one of the all-time great sequels, period. Uh, I also kind of just excluded really obvious stuff. <laughs> like, okay. I, I don't have Evil Dead 2, even though Evil Dead 2's a fantastic sequel. Okay, I, I didn't... I didn't put this on my list too. Cause this was like, now we sound like Randy from scream with like the rules. <laughs> I didn't put evil dead two on my list because I don't consider it a sequel. I consider it a reimagining of the original premise, which it basically is. And it's a more comedic bent. That's like pretty much all it is. Now I think so, some of the imagery in that movie is truly terrifying. Like the deer heads laughing at him and stuff. But I, you just can't tell me there's any continuity between Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2. It's just like, a, like to me, I've always thought of it as like a mulligan. Like, hey, we got more money. Let's make the movie we wanted to make first. Yeah, I agree with you completely. Okay. Absolutely. So, yeah, I don't, I don't have it either. Even though everybody should go watch Evil Dead 2 if they haven't seen it. Because it's fantastic. I, I also <laughs> refuse to consider Jaws a horror movie, even though I think it's arguably the scariest movie of all time. And I think Jaws 2 is a totally competent, fine movie. I just don't think of it as horror. I almost put Jaws 3 on my list. <laughs> 3? Coming in hot. Okay, I'm going to start. And again, I'm probably going to have more up-the-gut choices than you because you're the true expert. I'm like the basic the basic dude who kind of knows the, you know, who who knows the hits, but maybe overlooks the deep cuts. Number three was like my hardest. Cause I, I, I there was a lot of stuff that I thought Wait, about. number three or number six. Sorry. Sorry. Where are we okay. <laughs> number six was one of my hardest cuts. Cause it was kind of like what, what gets in here? What doesn't. And maybe at the end, we'll talk about what didn't make our list. I don't love this movie, but when I think about, this list, I feel like it just had to be on here. It's Exorcist 3. Okay, that that almost made my list. Okay. So I have no problems with that. So I don't think it's a very rewatchable horror movie. But as something that you experience once, it's undeniable that it's a well-crafted movie. It's got kind of a cool... perform. It's got cool performances from George C. Scott and... Uh, Brad Dorif, right, is the erstwhile priest who's... Isn't it Brad Dorif? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, well, Jason Miller. Yeah, and the original, the, original... the original priest, yeah, from... Yes. Uh, you know, from the movie. And then it's got... 
arguably the the most terrifying scene of the 90s, which is the hallway beheading that you can find on YouTube if you don't want to watch the full movie. And I think that's what got it into my six here. It's like, if you have something about yourself that is so iconic that it can it can stand up in the extra like against the original Exorcist as sort of like like I do think most people think of that as the all time greatest jump scare. So to me, it ha- it has to qualify for this list of best sequels because it it delivers something that is you know at least debatably you know a, a best of within the horror universe. Seventeen years ago. An extraordinary motion picture touched our most profound, nameless fears. Do you dare walk these steps again? Death be not proud. Your first, uh, first one. What, what's number six on on Steve's list? I'm so embarrassed. I have such garbage on my list. I'm sorry. I wanted to have fun with this list, but I'll go to bat for my number six. I think it's a legitimately good movie. Uh, my first one is Ouija Origin of Evil, directed by Mike Flanagan. All right. Uh, I never saw it, but it's 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 pretty locked in my brain that like he nailed it. I remember the trailer being truly terrifying, like the the kid like whispering in the in the ear with like the white eyes. Like that's how my daughters come into my room on like a Sunday morning. (laughs) So yeah, I'm creeped out just thinking about it. And I think what's remarkable about it is that the first Ouija movie, these are Blumhouse movies, by the way, the first Ouija movie was the worst PG 13 modern garbage. Like there wasn't a single scare in it whatsoever. And in the second one, Mike Flanagan uh, this is a prequel, and he takes it back to the 70s, and it's about this family that's dealing with the death of the father and husband, and it's very much about like the trauma and grief that the family's going over, but what's really cool about it is that aesthetically, Flanagan wanted the film to look like it was actually made in the 70s. And he even goes so far as to include, like, with the real changes, he has cigarette burns. And as you get closer to the end of the reels, he would, like, scratch up the film so it looked like you were reaching the end of the reel. He just does a lot of cool stuff like that throughout the film. You can tell that he's just having a good time. But also, it's just really well acted, and the story is involving. Yeah, I... (sighs) I'll watch it at some point, but it, yeah, from what I remember, people were kind of like blown away at how good it was when it came out because the expectations were pretty low, if I remember correctly. Oh my gosh! Well, after the first one, yeah, the first one's one of the worst uh, modern day horror films. And for those that don't know, Mike Flanagan, uh, he he's the one Netflix Haunting of Hill House and Haunting of Bly Manor which just came out. He also did uh, Hush and Oculus, and he also did Doctor Sleep, which is also a film that could have made my list. I think Doctor Sleep's a really good sequel. Uh... (laughs) You you can disagree. My number five, this might be a controversial pick because I'm kind of cheating here, Steve. (laughs) I'm going to pick Halloween 2, but which okay. I think gives me three movies for one. <laughs> Wait, which one? Rob Zombie's Halloween okay, so 2? If, I just think if you, if you say I'm picking Halloween 2, you get 
the actual Halloween two, which is the one I would probably pick. Okay. I think you get the, you know, is it David Gordon Green? Um, uh, 2018 remake of Halloween two, which ignores the rest of the franchise with, you know, which I thought was well done. I know some hardcore fans don't like it. I thought it was fine. And then you technically get the Rob Zombie part two, (laughs) which even though it's like a total clusterfuck mess, definitely is the more Rob Zombie of the two Halloween movies he made for sure. Yes. So, I mean, I I think normally I would say Halloween 2, like the original, which I think is a, it's a more visceral Halloween movie than maybe the first one is. It's certainly not a good movie in the way that Halloween is, but it's a, it's a, it's a, I guess you would say a a fine second edition, especially for back then when they would rush out sequels pretty quickly. Uh, But I also think you could. If I could also take the 2018 one, which I think is is a is a really interesting reimagining of what a sequel would look like now, um, I think together those are pretty pretty potent. Uh, I actually, yeah, I don't mind the original Halloween two. I like that it picks up literally seconds after the first one ends. The intro section is pretty terrifying. When he's just walking around, he finds the knife, he's in the back alleys. Like that to me is, I I still remember that from being scared of that when I was a kid. Yeah, it has some memorable imagery. Like it's not John Carpenter good, but it's Rick Rosenthal is who did it, who also did Halloween Resurrection, might I add. Uh, I mean, it has some memorable (laughs) imagery within it. It has some scary parts in it. And Jamie Lee Curtis is really good in it. And also, you talked about the Rob Zombie Halloween, too. You want to talk about a filmmaker just taking a series in an entirely different direction? I don't love it. But it's really ballsy, and I respect the hell out of it, even though I don't love it. And then the David Gordon Green one is absolute shit, and I refuse to discuss it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, the floor is yours. Ten seconds. Why is it so bad? Uh, It feels soulless. I I just... There, I, I I have nothing else. I don't know. It, it it's so like it wants to be modern, so it's really gory. I didn't find it scary at all. I hated the podcasters in it because podcasters, that's hip, and I, I get the irony. We're on a podcast right now, but just something about it bugged me. Like I hated his attempts at humor within it. Like the two cops talking about sandwiches or that whole weird thing about the little boy that wants to be a dancer. What are we doing? I just think, (laughs) or the doctor that wants to become Michael Myers. What? Like there's so many off like subplots. I don't care about whatsoever. I would say, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the the scene in the yard with the uh, motion sensor lights oh, is really oh, that cool. Seems fantastic. Um, and worth it alone. <laughs> it did miss. I would say the original Halloween two has some Hall of Fame Loomis though. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, it's so great! I freaking love it when uh. One of my favorite parts in part two is when, like, they just kill Ben Tramer for, like, no reason. 
<laughs> he's literally walking around with the Halloween mask, and they fucking blow him up. And yeah. they're like, oh, that wasn't Michael Myers. Yeah, okay. Loomis commits murder in that movie. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's like, it's pretty great. Okay, uh, that's my number five. What's What's your number five? Uh, my number five is also a recent one that I really liked. I don't think got any love. It's the strangers pray at night. Okay. I, I've heard of it a little, but not a ton. I know people really ride hard for the strangers and I don't particularly like the strangers. I think it's fine, but it's, I don't think of it as like this modern masterpiece the way others do. Oh, you don't? No. The strangers... The Strangers is the last time I was scared at a movie, and that was 12 years ago. I think The Strangers is one of the scariest movies of this century. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> well, so tell me about the sequel then. Uh, well, the sequel goes in an entirely different direction. It's a different director. It's Johan Roberts. Uh, he did 47 Meters Down in its sequel. Oh, yeah. two, two films, which I also think are a lot of fun. I think he's a great genre director. And he decides in the sequel, he kind of harkens back to like 70s and 80s filmmaking style. Like for the first half, it's all like slow zooms and split diopters. And then in the second half, it's all like neon lights and 80s pop tunes and all of that. It's like a pastiche, but it's a lot of fun. You have not seen it, right, Brad? No. You need to just YouTube the pool scene from that movie. The pool scene is one of the great horror scenes of this decade. No question. Okay. That is why it earned a spot on this list is for that scene alone. Better, Actually, the, la the last 20 minutes are fantastic. Better horror pool scene than the Freddy at the party in Nightmare 2. <laughs> oh my God. I just rewatched part two. That movie's mind blowing. <laughs> it's unreal. <laughs> Like it, I, you could write. I know they've probably written like entire textbooks about it, but it's like utterly unreal what they're doing in that movie. It's crazy. All right, um, my number four. This I would call it, a movie that made my list because the director decided to take what was one of the landmark, you know, horror films of the century and be like, screw its legacy. I want to do something totally batshit insane. I speak, of course, of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which is a bonkers movie. Like, there's no other way to describe it. I mean, there's a scene when uh, Dennis, uh, when Dennis Hopper has a chainsaw, like, <laughs> sword fight with Leatherface... <laughs> It's 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 a colossal insane like it's just a it's such a messed up movie. It's gory. It's like hypersexual. It's very comedic in a way that I didn't think you could play something like the original Leatherface character for laughs, but they do. And I I think it reminds me of Hellraiser two in that it it takes everything up to 11 it cranks everything up to 11 from the original but in a way that i think it doesn't work in hellraiser 2 it, it definitely works here for if, if you're willing to go where this one wants you to go 
Oh, it is one of the most insane movies ever made. <laughs> Dennis Hopper know. said it was the worst movie he ever made. Dennis Hopper said it was the worst movie. Like, that <laughs> is bonkers. Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> yeah. He was in Super Mario Brothers, but he still thinks Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is the worst film. Anyway, check it out if you haven't seen it. Uh, all right, you're, you're, let's keep it rolling. You're number four. So I'm going with the Nightmare on Elm Street series here. Yep. And you probably think I'd be like, oh, two, it's insane, or three, which is legitimately Oh, uh, no, I was thinking maybe you're going to go four or New Nightmare. Oh, my gosh, I'm going four. Yeah. <laughs> which, the Dream Master, I rewatched it this morning, and the only reason, this is this is my life right now, by the way, I'm rewatching The Nightmare on Elm Street 4 at 9 a.m. <laughs> yeah we're taping this on a weekday by the way so you get a sense for like our priorities but man like Rennie Harlan directed it and because of this he would go on to do Die Hard 2 and it just looks so good like the production value is so big and like Rennie Harlan really has like a filmmaker's eye like, it just looks really good. And the kill scenes are really creative. Uh, Freddy becomes a little too jokey, in my opinion. That's always been a problem. But Yeah, it, I think if Patricia Arquette had come back for this, it would be seen as the best sequel, potentially. Oh, oh my God, the acting in this is atrocious. <laughs> There's the infamous scene where they ran out of... Robert Englund days, so the dude who's into karate fights like an invisible Freddy. Yes! Yeah. <laughs> That's not the best. But the scene in the movie theater is arguably the best thing the franchise ever did outside the some of the set pieces from the f- original. The cockroach scene? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The roach motel or whatever where they check in. The scene at the at the diner where like he's like eating. I mean, it's gross. It dials up the grossness of it. Um, but it's, but it still gets it like the, the later sequels that came after this. I don't think uh, it's, I guess I would say it's a spiritual sequel to part three really yeah. well. It carries that tone forward appropriately. Um, and I, I, I'm with you. It's a little bit of MTV Freddy, but not too much to like make you not, it's not him playing a fucking game boy. You get like two years later. And the special effects, courtesy of Steve Johnson, are really good. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Like the the practical effects, like especially at the end when his souls are tearing him apart, it looks really good. Yeah. Elm Street Four, go for it, man. Uh, a worthy pick for the list. All right. My my number three is a little bit of a sleeper because my number two and one are going to be pretty expected here. My number three is a movie that scared me stupid when I was a kid and a movie that I think is getting a critical reappraisal now that we're adults. I speak, of course, of Psycho 2. It's 22 years later, and Norman Bates is coming home. I own a motel not too far from here. Okay. Really great Anthony Perkins performance. Like, I think he he's... He's doing the work. He's putting in the time. Uh, he's in a thankless position since his first role was so iconic. Great twists. 
in and out. It's really more of like a kind of a murder who done it for a long time. And mm-hmm. then just kind of unbelievable ending, which is still terrifying to this day. I remember seeing the trailer for this when I was a kid and being horrified. I remember seeing the movie when I was a kid and being really scared. And then I've listened to some podcasts about it because I do think there's been some, I think there's been a reappraisal that this is sort of a forgotten sequel that no one takes seriously because it's like, it seems like a cash grab after Hitchcock died, but it's a really interesting take on the character and what the story is. And I think they nail it. I'm glad you brought up Anthony Perkins performance because I feel like because the sequel is so many years after the original, he had that baggage always of the Norman Bates role. And I feel like that feeds into his performance and it's really good. I mean, it's heartfelt. It's, it's sad. All right. You're number three. Okay. So my number three, we're going to Jason series Friday, the 13th. Of course. And, uh, you know, which one I'm picking. (laughs) So which, which one are you picking? Because I have to Friday, the 13th part five, a new beginning. Oh my God. Why would you do this? This movie is not worth watching. It does not get enough love. Okay. It is the weirdest fucking Friday the 13th movie. It is everything that makes a Friday the 13th movie a Friday the 13th movie amped up to 11. The only difference is it doesn't have Jason. And yes, I do understand the irony of me picking the one that doesn't have Jason. But I think the kills are really gross and gory. And I mean, every scene almost feels like a different movie, and I love that insanity of it. Okay, so <laughs> I hate this movie. <laughs> I'm embarrassed that you chose this. I'm deleting this this file right now. <laughs> so I, I do agree that the kills are good. The, the, the belt strap is by far one of the most visceral deaths in Friday the 13th. Yeah. But I can't get over how annoying the characters are. The you really think, you, you think Ethel and Junior are annoying? Uh, <laughs> I, the only redeeming quality of this movie is the song that the girl is dancing to when Jason kills her, uh like there's a man with no light in his eyes or whatever. That's such a good song. And that girl does the robot so well. I can't Violet? believe you chose this though. I have a I have a Friday atop my list that we'll get to in a minute, but like I chose the appropriate uh one. Do you remember the scene where the guy's taking a shit in the porta potty and his girlfriend sings a song with him to make him shit? Is it ooh baby, ooh baby? Is that yes, the song? Yes. Yeah, Halloweenies talks. If you listen to that show, they talk about that song all the time. Uh again, this movie's insanity from beginning to end. <laughs> All right. My number two, look, my top of my list are the staples. My number two is Dream Warriors from Elm Street. Okay. I don't think we have to go too in depth. It, it To me, I, I think Elm Street 1 is a close to perfect horror movie in terms of what it's trying to do. It scares. It's got the iconic scenes. It's got characters you can root for. I it's do think, creative, too. Yeah, I think three most successfully in the franchise introduces new characters that you actually root for and want to see succeed. And it's that rare 
horror movie that doesn't just come down to the final girl. Like there's a there's a crew and and a couple of them make it. And it's got like the drunk dad from the first one. I think it was We Hate Movies that was like, why wasn't the series all about the dad at a certain point? <laughs> like, why don't we get like, you know, movie five, six, seven, just about that cop. Um, but, you know, whatever. And, and, and I think this one is the one that most successfully gets humor from Freddy without going. I mean, I know it's got like Welcome to Primetime Bitch and stuff, but it's not so far into that that you would get within the next few movies. This is it, Jennifer. Your big break in TV. Welcome to prime time, bitch. So I'm with you there. Also, uh, the director, Chuck Russell, he was a big FX guy, uh, special effects guy. Yeah, practical effects. They look great. He would go on to direct like Jim Carrey's The Mask. He's a funny dude. I I like the introduction of really dark humor into part three as well. I will say, though, I picked four over three only because during the end credits of part four, Freddy raps with the fat boys, and that is not present in part three. (laughs) Fair. I'm glad. Totally uh, reason for picking that. All right. What's what's your number two? Okay, you're going to hate me for my number two? So I'm just going to say it. Halloween H2O. <laughs> Never talk to me again. <laughs> it's, one of the wor- it's one of the worst movies I've ever seen. That is untrue. Why would you say that? I'm curious. Okay. Josh Hartnett's purposeful bedhead. <laughs> is unwatchable in that film. <laughs> I'm not going to argue with you there. Okay. That's number one. <laughs> number two, the stakes of that movie are so weird. They're like, oh, let's let's have him stalk his sister. They really lean into the whole sister thing of it, which I just... I never understood. I never liked it from the second one. Oh, I never did either. I'm with you there. And I, I don't know, man. I, I, I can't really remember. I feel like the entire movie is just sort of like lots of dicking around and her being worried <laughs> she's going to see Michael walk up to her house and kill her. And then she looks out the window one day. And, yeah, that's what he's doing. He's just walking up to the house. Like, I don't understand any of it, man. I, I just it's in takes place in California. What the fuck's going on? <laughs> okay, so let me briefly def- defend it. I it introduces the idea of suffering of of an individual, a victim suffering from PTSD, which I think is fascinating. I think they do interesting things with it. They would take it further in the 2018 version, but I honestly think this one did it better. Well, because it's like she had two glasses of wine at lunch and they're like, oh, my God, are you okay?" She's like, well, you know, it's the anniversary of when my brother tried to kill me. And the guy's like, well, you should really tone it down. (laughs) And you like the 2018 version. (laughs) The 2018 version, her at at the dinner embarrassing herself in front of the family, I think, is more as a more compelling version of what she's trying to do in H2O. See, I I think it. It's more subtle in H2O, which I appreciate. And you're going to be like, that's stupid. 
but I honestly think it's more subtle. And I think the last 20 minutes of H2O, when it's just Jamie Lee Curtis and Michael, like mano a mano, is really well done. And it ends perfectly. You mean in the next movie when you find (laughs) out she murdered a paramedic and he kills her? (laughs) That is so fucking stupid. I don't even want to talk about resurrection, okay? Um... (laughs) No, but I think this one ends on a perfect note with her decapitating Michael, and then she finally, like, breathes. She has that moment of relief, and the movie just cuts to black. Like, I think that's an effective ending to the series, is her finally facing her demons. See, I think, I I really believe the Halloween movies are low-key the, like, some of the worst sequels. Like, oh, I, they are. They are. The Hellraiser takes a lot of shit, and and Elm Street, and 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 I mean, for, the jokes on Friday the Thirteenth that like those movies are so bad. I think those movies are some of the best. Um, but Halloween doesn't have like I I kind of picked Halloween two earlier, but like I really don't I don't love that movie. And H two O man, okay, first of all, it called it H two O. Okay, I don't know what that's about. I get it's the 20 years, but why is there an H in front of it so it sounds like water? Yeah, it's like wet and Michael Myers was not a thing. It was in that weird weird thing, like when they did like ID4, everything that needed to be like an abbreviation in the the early aughts. Dude, it's like like Michael Myers meets the faculty. That's what that entire vibe of that film is. It's got that glossy kind of scream veneer. Oh, I just yeah. don't it's, like it at all. It's because Kevin Williamson, who did scream, had a hand in it. And it does do a lot of that meta stuff. I know you absolutely hate that Tippy Hedren shows up. Or not Tippy Hedren, I'm sorry. I know you hate that Janet Lee shows up with the car from Psycho. I know you yeah. hate that. I mean, just, I don't know, man. Also, I'm not going to defend LL Cool J who is writing an erotic novel. <laughs> I don't even remember him in this movie. He, oh, he's a security guard writing an erotic novel. Oh, right. But it, if only he'd had his parrot from Deep Blue Sea. <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I, I knew you were going to give me shit for that choice. I stand by it. Uh, all right. My number one. Arguably the greatest film of the 80s. <laughs> Jason Lives, the sixth installment in the Friday the 13th movies. I'm just, I, I've made my case over the years on this podcast. I'm just going to say this movie works as both gothic horror and 80s action movie. <laughs> What's forgotten about the Friday the 13th franchise is a lot of these movies start really slow. This uh-huh. movie does not. It is. An amazing introduction set piece. It's the best shot Jason movie by far. It looks great. It's got like an auteur's, uh, you know, perspective on what the franchise should be. It's got really in-your-face satire of '80s uh, military, uh, you know, attitudes toward. Um, money and capitalism, attitudes toward uh, gender dynamics in the workplace. It's got these like built-in kind of satirical moments, but they're still kind of cool. And it's got the best lead characters from one of these sequels where the Tommy and his, uh, I forget what the, 
What? Who's the? Who's the? Like the final sidekick girl? Chris? No, it's not Chris. Oh man, I can't remember. Megan, right? <laughs> it Megan. Yes, yeah. Yeah, it's it. got Tommy and Megan. Megan is like a character with like real agency, like a woman who's like thrilled by the stakes of the movie, who like opts into like being part of, um, you know, the chase and 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 breaking Tommy out of prison and whatever. And I think the kills are cool, and it just looks great. It's the best Jason, too. I think this is by far the best Jason. Uh, you mentioned, you know, like the directing of it, how good it looks, and the director Tom McLaughlin. I mean, he really wanted to direct a Friday the Thirteenth film. Like it's he a was crime excited. They didn't. Like they went on to make some of the worst ones in the franchise. They should have just handed the keys to this guy, kept the lead couple, and been like, roll this back three more years. He literally seems like the only filmmaker that wanted to be there. <laughs> like everybody else, I feel like took on the series as a last resort. He was a victim, I think, of part five being a bust. And then it felt like the stakes were out of the franchise. And and even though he came back in and made arguably the best movie in the franchise, um, like it didn't make as much money. And so they just kind of like moved on to somebody else. You know? Yeah, that was that was the downfall of the series starting with six, which is a real shame, as you said, because I was going to put it on my list, but I knew you'd have it at number one on yours, which is why I went with five. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's arguably the greatest movie of the 80s. <laughs> and you didn't even mention the kids in it. It actually has kid. Yeah, it's got real counselors. It. That scene's terrifying when they're like, he's like in the and, and that shows a different side of the mythology that's not in your, it's not in your face about it, but it's like, he's not there to kill the kids. No, not at all. He like, he can, and he chooses not to, you know? Yeah. It's a perfect movie. <laughs> all right. Well, that's my list. Let's get to your number one. Uh, what's, uh, what's your all time horror movie sequel? <laughs> Uh, I, I'm bracing myself for the worst. Like, what Critters Two or something? Oh my God, you're gonna be pissed off at me, probably. Um, I had to do it though. My number one is Final Destination Five. Oh, dude, what are you like a Vox uh, article? Because this is another one of these movies that's getting this like reappraisal, but for me, not in a way that I think is meaningful at all. So I just rewatched this entire series this summer because I am a big fan of this series. And part five is legitimately the best made. It looks like a real movie. I can't say that for part four whatsoever. Uh, the opening, the bridge, whole sequence, because these films always open with like, you know, all the destruction yeah. and stuff is one of the best of the series at the same time. Honestly, I could probably take this one out and put in final destination two. And I'd be okay as well, because I love final destination two. It has the best kills. Like FD two has that, that car chase or the car scene in the beginning, which like there's, you can go find like Quentin Tarantino breaking it down on YouTube. Oh somewhere. my gosh. It's so good. It, yeah, the whole highway thing. Like, every time I drive, I think of that sequence. But I think Part 5 is also really clever in how it gets into the mythology, especially when you get near the end and everybody figures out that, like, okay, how do we escape death? We just have to kill somebody else in the group. 
I think that's clever. I like that. And then how it ties everything together, and you have the big plot twist at the end that ties it back to the original film. I think it's ingenious. I really like it a lot. Yeah, the ending is really weird how they how they do that with the original, but it uh, you know it's genuinely it's genuinely surprising. Yeah, I don't know. Is Tony Todd in that one? Yes, he is. He he makes an appearance. I never understood his role in those movies. <laughs> <laughs> he was the one that just explained everything. That was it. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I, yeah, you're right. I hate that pick, but I, I give you credit <laughs> for doing it. Uh, here's oh, a couple. Oh, go ahead. It, it was directed by Stephen Quayle. He was like a second unit director on like Avatar and Titanic. I just want to stress how good this movie looks. It's really well made. And it has the gymnast death scene, which is one of the best in the entire series. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Our listeners are like, end this. I will throw out a couple on my list that didn't, or a couple that didn't, didn't make my list. If we had made this list like 10 years ago, Scream 2 would have been on it, but I have really soured on that movie. I just think it's atrocious. I have not rewatched it in probably 15 years. You can really tell that they made it like a year later because it's just so rushed. There's no real nothing makes sense. There's they ran everything like back. That's the problem with the Scream franchise that runs everything back in the same way. Uh, which I hate. Uh, I, I mentioned Hellraiser 2, I, I, a film that I liked growing up, but again, I think is utterly insane. I thought about Poltergeist 3. Ooh. That... Like that that like weird like Children of the Corn villain they added is creepy. Plus they filmed it in the building where I work, so it's like, uh, and you get some Tom, Tom, you know, you get some Tom Skerritt. Um, but it, the ending of that movie is is truly dreadful, and I the one I really like legitimately crossed out of uh, the sixth slot was Creepshow Two, specifically because of the raft. Wait, you like the raft sequence? The raft sequence is is legitimately terrifying. When have you rewatched it? Well, I've seen that a bunch. I watched that online this summer, and like was like happy we couldn't go swimming because of the pandemic. Oh, Brad, I just rewatched that this summer too. And I thought that was the worst of that movie. Uh, And and that's saying something because I think Creepshow 2 is a terrible movie. (laughs) Yeah, it didn't make my list. It didn't make my list. Anything you want to shout out from your also rands? Um, I'll agree with you. Uh, Hellraiser 2 was almost on my list because Mm -hmm. it's insane. I also have a soft spot for Hellraiser 3 as well, <laughs> even though that was tried to take the series in a different direction. It took the series in a, in like the slasher direction. The nightclub scene is kind of fun, but it doesn't really pay off for me. And then we were getting into what constitutes a horror film. Blade 2 is a really good sequel. Blade Two is an, a legitimately great movie. I just don't know that it's it's horror at all. Like it's it, to Ex- me, it's an action movie. Exactly, which is why I did not include it. But I mean, it does have some really scary monsters in it, so I'll give it that. Yeah, Blade 
Ron, <laughs> Hall of Fame Ron Perlman in that movie. Oh my God! Yeah, I should have included it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well. <laughs> A robust discussion for you and me. Let's end with some shout outs. I'll shout out Ita Thomas who came on. Uh, go check him out online. Read him at uh, basketballnews.net and other places. Uh, we'll share some links to his work when we, when we post this. Uh, Steve, anyone or anything to shout out? Uh, well, our, our podcast, Summer Blockbuster, that I co-host is currently on COVID hiatus, but we're going to be <laughs> back within the next couple weeks. Nice. So check us out. We just talk about weird summer movies. I mean, when we think about summer movies, we think about like big blockbusters. We talk about some of the odder stuff. One day we will do the UHF conversation, my friend. Oh, we need to do UHF. Absolutely. That movie, that movie definitely should have made a list of some kind uh, for scariest movie. Uh, The (laughs) Stanley Spadowski stuff is so weird and gross. And has just aged so creepy, but whatever. Isn't it amazing you still remember that name? Me too. It's like burned <laughs> on my brain, yeah. Right. I just remember the kids screaming Stanley Spadowski's Playhouse. Yeah, and he gets the fire hose. <laughs> Terrifying. And and in the immortal words of uh, uh, Shaquille Sp- Spadowski, uh, booty rappers, <laughs> stay booty. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>